Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. One of the biggest weeks in sports with a contradiction, the Monday and the Wednesday before the All-Star Games are the only days on the sports calendar where the big four teams theoretically have no games. But, oh, by the way, it's caught up with a whole lot of other stuff. Believe me, the NFL camp's opening pretty soon. Wimbledon in the middle of it, NASCAR going to the next step, NBA and, and, uh, and NHL with free agency. We'll cover all of that with our worldwide digital sports editor guru, Dan Calaruso. How's that for an intro? I would love to be considered a, a sports editor, but I'm not that expert in the field. That's your device. I'm just a, a regular old editor, but I'm glad to be here, Rick, back from the holiday weekend, uh, and the sports calendar isn't slowing down at all. No, it's, it's becoming even more significant, and we start with a story, ironically, with a league that, that is a bit dormant, but not at the bank book and not at the checkbook. Stephen Curry, five-year, $201 million extension, the richest contract in league history, the $200 million club. And by the way, it's not just the free agency time period, but it's the salary cap, $99 million next season, and the luxury tax line, $119 million. So if you go over it, that's okay. If you want to buy a championship, that's okay. And the minimum, by the way, is $89 million, representing 90% of the cap. So they got you both ways. You, you got to spend a lot of money, but you got to spend at least X. So good for the NBA, good for the players. I think so. I mean, it was really funny in the run-up to the championship, all the stories that were out about how Steph Curry was underpaid. I'm sure he knew this was coming, and I'm sure that being the inaugural member of the $200 million club, uh, it, it has, has uh, you know, kind of eased the pain of being underpaid for him a little bit. Rick, let's talk to $200 million club. Who else is going to be in this group by, by the end of next season, two seasons from now? How do you see the $200 million club shaping up? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to define because, first of all, every team's articles these weeks are talking about how much money they have under the salary cap because of that $99 million number. Ironically, though, every team has it, so they don't have any more leverage over anybody else. There will be a lot of max contracts, super max contracts, a super max for the first time. It's a kind of an interesting legal distinction, but it is over $200 million. So you're going to see 8, 10 guys getting there, even in markets where you don't expect them to go. And the middle-level guys now have the ability to say maybe anywhere from 15 to 20 teams have the dollar ability, regardless of your small, middle, or large market, to put you in that $200 million club. So I'm not going to say there's the next one or two. I'm going to say there's a whole bunch. Okay, so tell me. So there'll be LeBron, Kevin Durant, and his next contract. There'll be a couple of others we expect. Who? Pick me a surprise. Throw, me, throw out a wild card for me. Who's going to be the supermax that will make me stop and say, huh? Well, you know, it, it may be somebody in the league who is let's call it a let's call it a sixer let's let's call it 
one of the guys. It's not Embiid, but it may be one of the guys that's coming up. I think John Wall, for example, in Washington mm. may be the next $200 million guy just because of timing. Right, so, right. That's a surprise, although the way he played in that series against Boston, it's not a surprise. Well, Wall's a great player, right? But but again, it's more on, on the Supermax, it's more timing. It's more right right place, right time in a lot of ways. So it's 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 fascinating. I think the, the way the NBA economics is shaping up with this Supermax contracts, with, with the kind of disbursement in the league of talent and how much is shifted around this free agent um, season, especially early on in it. It's, it's really interesting. I, I had uh, breakfast with Peter Fagan, the president of the Bucks, last week, and we talked a lot about demographic shifts in America and how second mid, mid-market teams actually have the audience and the capability of getting new arenas and building up the supporting economic structures to put a competitive team on the court consistently. Whereas 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you, you had no chance if you were a mid-market team. You had to watch New York, L.A., Chicago just run away with all the money, and you had to be competitive and be entrepreneurial in your, and lucky uh, to, to be in there, right? Yeah, and I think it also helps that New York, Chicago, L.A., which have the most money to do what they want with as far as net worth is concerned, have made some, let's say, abysmal <laughs> management choices over the past 10 years. And they may now have gotten rid of, uh, you know, I know you're a Knicks guy, and maybe the getting rid of uh, Phil Jackson may be onward and upward for that team. That's another issue for another day. Yeah. But it has leveled the playing field a little bit, even if it's incompetence that's leveled it. Yeah, it really has, and it's, it's good to see. And even when, when Big Chief Triangle... As, as he was once referred to in a not-so-complimentary <laughs> way uh, by my other hero, Jeff Van Gundy. Um, if Big Chief Triangle can't succeed in New York with the, with the New York payroll behind him, it does give you a, a little pause that refreshes in American sports where it's not just dominated by the big-money, big-market teams. You talk about American athletes, but we segue across the pond. All-England Tennis Club, Wimbledon 140th Championship, 90th anniversary of the first radio broadcast, 70th of the first... TV, 50th First Color, and now they cut a deal with Sina Sports, an agreement to become the official Wimbledon partner for all of China, China's social media platforms, 2017 to 2019, reaching out to China with an amazing legacy tournament. Big deal, huh? A huge deal. I mean, you know, not to go back to my very prescient um, call that Chinese sponsors would be big at the Olympics a week before Alibaba announced his deal with the IOC. I'll put that on the side. I won't take another victory lap, Not won't do another end zone dance about that. But you'll see the Chinese big money coming in on sports and, and events that they consider culturally relevant, that, that hit very nicely with the emerging affluent in that country. There's a lot of money being made by the brands. The brands in China, even the smaller brands, are so big as to capture the imagination of any investment bank any any commercial entity out there. So I don't think we realize it here in the States, but there is a tremendous, tremendous market for this there, for these kind of sports and these kind of events there. I'll give you one anecdote about China and tennis. We did a video here a couple weeks back. It was probably the most interesting video we've done in a long time about a new artificial intelligence device developed by an entrepreneur in China, sold not, not by a big business, that coaches your tennis swing because they, they have so many casual tennis players that they don't have enough coaches to teach them how to play. So this is something you strap to your racket, and it tells you you're going too high, going too low, level it out, whatever it might be. That said, that just points to the power of that market and the power of the numbers that are in that market and how they affect the commercial output of things. So I think 
Huge sponsorship. Great move for Wimbledon coming geographically and commercially, catching up to us. We love the tradition, but it's nice to see the diversity. And, and the potential. Tradition, diversity, and potential. Absolutely. Uh, played golf with Shen Feng, the uh, Chinese star on the LPGA Tour at a pro-am at the LPGA Championship. I'll, you drop names, I'll drop them as well last week. And all she talked about was the amazing potential, her academies and reaching Chinese golfers. And to your point about tennis, all you need is 5% market share and you're going to dominate in tennis and in golf and otherwise. So, you know, your videos well-placed, Chinese entrepreneurs well-placed, all sports, especially individual sports like tennis and golf, a big deal. The biggest issue to me, I guess, here is coming home you know, started to put together the Miami Sports Authority seemingly 40 years ago. I have a uh, program that I pulled out 1965, the Miami Marlins, the old Florida State League team, 14 wow. years before Cal Ripken played there and his dad coached. And now, 2000, 1993, the Marlins start, 1997, first championship, 2003, second one. Let's forget Bartman and the Cubs. 2012, <laughs> the new stadium. And now they have an all-star game five years later in 2017. Big deal for Miami, although Jeffrey Loria better sell that franchise, but also a big deal for Major League Baseball and the all-star game, right? Yeah, I think, you know, first off, the, fr- the, the city, the baseball community there, I think you can probably speak to it better than I can, needs something to cheer about, right? Um, and, and I think it's, it's big there, but I think you can, you're going to see the event. We, always talk, we talk about this a lot on the show, about how the event... Um, transcends the actual game, right? And here, again, whether it's the home run derby, whether it's the ancillary economy around the game, the tourist thing, I mean, it's just, it's bigger in Miami because it's already a destination and it's already kind of a place to go. So I think it is a nice positioning for the city this year and maybe a little boost for the franchise and, and certainly for Major League Baseball. And especially now that they've gotten rid of the, uh, the World Series consequence to the All-Star game, where it does then just get to become a fun spectacle and not have any real-world implications. Yeah, big deal here. Again, Stanton, you're right, against uh, that, uh, that monumental Aaron Judge. I can't, I, can't, I can't wait to see that. That's going to be fun. All-Star game itself? Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. 170 countries, 13 languages, and, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big deal. We, we can't wait until the selling and buying. There are a lot of teams, by the way, at 500. We'll talk about that later on this month. Where, like Tampa Bay, do you sell, do you buy? Cubs, uh, 500, World Series champions last year, do you sell, do you buy? That'll be an interesting economic consequence. We'll talk about that as we get closer to the trade deadline later this month. Yeah, it is. It's, it's that time of the year, right? And you start to wonder, like, is your team going to cash it in? Do you get to see that minor league shortstop who you've been pining for for the last 18 months? Like, all that stuff kind of kind of plays into the equation. But, again, the All-Star Game is a, is a great break for the baseball season. It's a way to rekindle your joy if your team is in the dumps. It's a way to watch your favorite players. It's a way to see players you don't get to see all the time. You know, and it is really the event that baseball has to start to leverage a little bit more, and especially, I think, internationally. And it's an incredible showcase for people who have been heroes of the game. It's a trade show. It's a business. And, and uh, you know, a good example, good segue, Cal Ripken Senior Foundation for the last 16 years. They've implemented these youth development programs across the country. The Ripken Foundation, about 300,000 kids annually, 20 states, 65 parks, 1.2 million kids through the Nation Youth Development Park and Mentor Program. So he'll be around the All-Star Game. His guys will be. Major League Baseball in the inner cities embraces all of this. And Steve Salem, 
who is the president of the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation and kind of an architect of all of this, gives us a perspective of the economics of it, the business consequences of it, and the social do-good implications as well. Steve Salem. How are you, Steve? Fine, thanks. Good. It's good to be here. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about the Ripken Foundation, just an elevator speech. And it's a long elevator ride, so yeah. give us an idea of what the foundation does. So what we are doing is literally in all 50 states trying to provide opportunities. We use baseball as a hook, but it really is just a hook. Provide opportunities to kids who have been left behind, at-risk kids, distressed communities, using baseball to provide them with a platform to move forward in life in a positive way. There are a lot of people whose foundation mandate is similar to that. The difference is Cal has scaled it to the point of unbelievable national success. How special is Cal Ripken to work with? Uh, he's incredible. Nobody cares more about these kids than Cal and his brother Bill. Uh, they are 100% committed to beyond their baseball careers, making a difference in the lives of these kids, and that's what they want as their legacy. They don't want to be remembered for what they did on the field, they want to be remembered for what they did off the field. Give us an example of your kind of core business facility. Perfect world, mixture of fields, education, we understand that there is a, a STEM training involvement as well, female empowerment, you do it all. Yeah, we, we're doing a lot of things. We, have, we really are broken down into two um, primary areas. First, we build what we call youth development parks, which are synthetic turf, million-dollar-plus parks in the toughest neighborhoods in America so that the kids who reside there have the same opportunities to play and play anything that our kids have. These kids, you go into a, a tough inner-city neighborhood, first of all, if you end up there, you're probably lost. You're not going there intentionally. And, but when you do go there, you don't see the kids. It's not that they don't live there. It's not safe for these kids to be outside. You'll see the drug dealers. You'll see the gang members. You'll see some things going on that you, nobody wants to see. But you don't see kids playing. And that's what we're trying to provide first, a place for these kids to play whatever it is they want to play. Now, these parks happen to be state-of-the-art, spectacular places uh, so that no matter where these kids go in life, they'll never see a nicer park. And if they want to play competitive sports, now they have the opportunity. If they just want to go for a walk and play kickball with their friends, now they have that opportunity. And then the second thing we do is we have a, a um, uh, group of programs like the ones you mentioned, STEM. We're, we're putting STEM centers in inner city schools. Uh, we have a program called GREAT, which is to empower young women. Um, we've got a program called Badges for Baseball, and think about this, knowing what's going on across America these days. We go into the toughest neighborhoods, the same neighborhoods where these police officers and kids are killing each other and where the rioting's taking place, and we're providing them with, the, with what they need to play baseball together. And the police officers become the coach. And the kids, we're talking about middle school age kids primarily, and so now these kids look at the police officer instead of the bad guy, He's the coach. And think about who in your life you didn't want to disappoint when you were a kid. It's the coach. And think about whose life lessons you think about today, 50 years later, if it's not your dad and your mom, it's your coach. And so we're changing that, uh, you know, we're changing the, 
the dynamic of these communities and the trajectory of these kids' lives. Give me an idea of the of the numbers, your, your organization itself and your goals and aspirations and how many projects do you want to do in a certain period of time? Right. So we, uh, 12 years ago, we were basically a $1 million organization. Uh, today we have uh, an annual fundraising goal of $35 million, uh, which we will hit. Uh, our, we have built 65 youth development parks across the country. And doing the math, it's at least a million dollars apiece. Some of them were multi-million dollar projects. Um, we invest about half of the resources to bring those projects to bear, um, and the local community brings the other half. Um, our goal by 2020 is to have 150 of these parks. Twelve years ago, we were serving or impacting about 25,000 kids, primarily through local baseball clinics. Today, this year, we'll impact over 1.2 million kids. Our goal is to get to 2 million kids per year by 2020. Uh, so it's been a fun ride. It's a little bit overwhelming, but, but Cal's name carries a lot of clout when you go into these communities, but it's his passion and his commitment you know, he puts his money where his mouth is, and it's contagious. Steve Salem, your background, boys and girls clubs, but you've come out of the nonprofit business as well, right? Absolutely. I, I actually did a short stint with the New York Yankees out of law school. Well, they're not and a nonprofit then, business. You know, they're not, definitely not a nonprofit. <laughs> and then uh, went to Boys and Girls Clubs of America for 15 years, uh, ended as the vice president of government relations there, running the government relations office and then went over at the request of Cal and Bill to the Ripken Foundation. It's an interesting experience. Can you give us some sense of the similarities and differences, probably more similarities, between running a, a mid-level corporation versus the nonprofit that you're running today? Well, to me, my philosophy is there's no difference. You need a product that people want to invest in, you need to keep your word, do what you say you're going to do. You need to generate interest and excitement. The challenge that we have in the nonprofit world that maybe you don't have in the for-profit world is we don't really have a product to sell. We're selling the heartstrings. But in every other way, we're, we have built and continue to build our business the same way we would build a for-profit company, and, and it's working. You're in a city, obviously, you succeed at an alarming successful rate, but what are some of the, or the one biggest challenge you have when you're in a community to be able to pull a deal off? I think the biggest challenge is finding, you know, you're going into some really, really tough neighborhoods. I mean, the worst of the worst in many cases. And it's very hard to find a sustainable existing program because that's what we need to partner with. And in some cases, it's just not there. And it's uh, very hard. And but once we go in and we say we're coming, we do not turn back. So uh, that's probably our biggest challenge. Have you seen the economy directly affect you positively or negatively as you go forward? Is it uh, sunny skies ahead, or we do we have do we have issues? Where you're well, concerned? You know, when the economy crashed in 2009, I think, mm -hmm. it hit all of us, you know. And if you were able to stay flat, you were very successful. And we actually grew a little bit through that period of time. Um, and so we've been very fortunate for a number of reasons, including having the uh, founder that we have. 
but it's always a challenge in this business. You know, no matter how successful you are, you are completely dependent on the generosity of others. And so it's not just whether your fortunes change, what about their fortunes? And so it's, that's, it's all, no matter what, it's, that's where you lose your sleep. And you're taking this concept beyond baseball? Well, we don't, I mean, baseball's our hook, of course. It's our shtick because of yeah, the name. Right. But we don't care if these kids know how to play baseball. Huge, huge problems in uh, inner city communities today is obesity, juvenile yeah. diabetes, and the lack of nutrition. You know, when these kids are, I mean, this is what we're dealing with. When one of these kids is hungry, they take a dollar, they go buy a Coca-Cola, and they chug it because it gives you that fake yeah. filth uh, sensation. So that's their meal. Um, so many of these kids tell us that the only reason they go to school during the day is because they're hungry, and they know they can get a meal at lunchtime. How do you and Cal feel when you're about to watch the first game played in a new facility that you've just caused to be open? It is the most overwhelmingly wonderful feeling you can imagine <clears throat> to see these kids come on to, it's their field. We build these million dollar fields and we give it to the community. It's theirs, not ours. They own it. Uh, and what we often do is we'll put a ribbon out and instead of the mayor, uh, you know, and the people with all the money cutting the ribbon, we'll have the kids run through the ribbon. Uh, it's overwhelming. Cal Ripken's vision, Steve Salem, is in very good hands. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.